welcome back. Now, anyone who knows me, it's no secret that I don't run. I choose to live my life under the authority of Proverbs 28.1 that says, the wicked run when no one is pursuing them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The truth is I'm just too lazy to run. My daughter-in-law, my son-in-law, my other son-in-law, my son, they're all avid racers and they participate in all kinds of things. They do tough mutters, triathlons, 5Ks, marathons, Ironman races. I don't even know what else. You have some interesting stories about that too, but we won't tell them here. I do. Sometime they're going to fit into an episode and I'll, I'll share some of them. But they're not the only crazies who think it's actually fun to run. In fact, running and racing is a global phenomenon. And as a result, there are all kinds of races that are held all over the world. And Chris, we've done a little research on some of the toughest ones. Yeah. And Rose, I'm like you, not much of a runner. I've, I've run one 5k in my entire life. I <laughs> used, to, I used to jog. I used to jog with my neighbor and she could have run circles around me with her dog, with my dog and everything <laughs> else when we did that. But that was a long time ago. I stick to walking now, although I would like to get back to it a little bit, but some of these races like, okay, here's a list of a few that we found. Pikes Peak Ascent, that's held in Manitou Springs, Colorado, which is an awesome place to go and visit. It has the runner start at 6,300 feet elevation and navigate a winding narrow trail of gravel and rocks and dirt on their way up the summit of Pikes Peak at 14,115 feet. But that's only half the battle. Then they have to descend the mountain, which is often more dangerous. There's a good chance that there's going to be snow at the peak, which means that runners are going to go from 60 to 70 degree weather at the base of the mountain to below freezing temperatures at the top. And that's not fun. I've experienced that. And there has even been lightning strikes recorded many years. And people do this for fun. Yeah. My kids used to run cross country, so they would probably like a challenge like this sometimes. Well, Here's another one maybe they'll like. It's called the Self-Transendenzen 3100-mile race. It's the longest certified road race and possibly the most miserable mentally. It starts at 6 a.m. one summer morning in Queens, New York. And from then until midnight, every day for 52 days in a row. Participants run the same 60-mile route, 60 miles a day, every day for 52 days. And my question is, why? I don't know, but just shoot me if I ever say I'm going to do that because <laughs> you'll know I'm going crazy. That doesn't sound fun. Here's one. It's called the Tour de Gants. I don't know if I'm saying that exactly right, but it's run in Italy every year. Runners run 205 miles and encounter almost every type of weather that's imaginable, as well as running uphill enough to climb Everest, get this, two and a half times. And we'll do one more. The Plain 100 held in Plain, Washington. Participants have 36 hours to finish 100 miles, and there are no course markings, no aid stations, or pacers. You're completely on your own to figure out if you're going to make it to the finish line. Yeah, again, people say this is fun. If you have no direction, 
I don't think you're going to make it. No. Oh my gosh. I'd still be running a year later. I'd still be trying to find my way. (laughs) Yes. Well, you may be wondering, why are we talking about racing so much? Well, today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now, in the first 23 verses, Paul is still on the subject of Christian liberty, which we looked at in depth last week. And what he does is he makes it personal for himself. He makes some excellent points and really drives the subject home. So we strongly suggest you read it. But for today, we're going to concentrate on 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 to 27. And they say, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's the end of the scripture. Racing and athletic competitions was just as big a deal around Corinth as it is today, maybe even bigger. Commentator Eric Sauer has said that Corinth was a city whose masses demanded only two things, bread and games. (laughs) Major competitions all offered one coveted prize, a wreath made of laurel or pine cones. Like many serious athletes today, you can imagine serious competitors would train hard. Their life would revolve around their training. Besides spending many hours a day perfecting their sport, their training affected what they ate and how they spent their leisure time. Like with Olympic athletes today, they were singularly focused on getting this gold medal or this wreath. To quote Mickey from the first Rocky movie, to win a 45-minute boxing match, You have to train 4,500 hours. Great line from that movie. The Corinthians, my husband, Ed, and Paul would say that the expression, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game is utter nonsense. It is. I agree. (laughs) I knew you would because you and Ed are the same person. Yes. In fact, the Corinthians and Paul would agree with my husband when he says, if you're not first, you're last. And he has all our grandkids can say that on cue. If you're not a winner, you're a loser. Yep. When we were on our honeymoon in Jamaica, we were at a couple's resort. And if you won enough activities and earned enough points, you got a really nice necklace. It was like a leather pair of sandals because the resort was sandals. Well, I made the mistake of mentioning that they were cute and I would love to have them. And that's all I had to tell him because then on, he was a man on a mission. And since it was a couple's resort, everything had to be done as a couple. So he entered us in all these competitions. And I remember a volleyball tournament and I admit I'm not very coordinated and I missed a couple balls. So he came over and he quietly told me to just stand near the out of bounds line and he would play both our positions. This was on our honeymoon. I'm just laughing because that's so funny. Now we live in this Everybody gets a participation trophy society where kids aren't even allowed to play dodgeball because the person who gets hit with the ball might feel bad. You know, Ed and I and Paul probably sound very harsh. But the reality is there is no serious athlete who takes the court or the field or whatever thinking, I just want to play the game well and I don't really care if I win. I'm going to get a trophy no matter what. 
And any who do have that attitude usually wind up being a loser. The loser. Serious athletes want to win. That's why you see grown men bawling after they lose the World Series or when they end up with the silver medal on the Olympics. It's not just about playing the game. It's definitely about winning. There's something to winning. That's right. It's not a bad thing. And I knew that this wouldn't be a stretch for you. Heck no. You know me. <laughs> I don't give out participation trophies. No, you don't. If you've ever watched a race like the Boston Marathon, you see a mass of people all dashing off the starting line together. Well, if you watch a little longer, you start to see them spread out. Watch even longer, and you see that there is a very distinct divide between the people in the race. Yeah, you basically see three groups. The stragglers who end up jogging or even walking far in the back. Then there's the majority of the people who are bunched up in the middle. But way out in front, you see a few people who are really hauling it. They aren't just happy to be in the race. They are definitely looking to win. No, There's no doubt. That's right. And all of this plays into the point that Paul illustrates in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27 that we read. It's a point that's crucial to our Christian walk. In a nutshell, in our Christian walk, we're to race to win. We need to be one of those in the front hauling it, pushing ourselves to win. We don't want to be bunched up in the middle with those happy-to-be-average Christians, and we definitely don't want to be in the back ambling along, slowing down, stopping for a rest, taking in the view, just slowly making our way. Our single goal in our Christian walk on this earth should be to win. And in the passage that we read from 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says in verse 23, just to repeat it, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Chris, the Greek word for run here that Paul uses means striving hard to spend one's strength in performing or attaining something. It matters that you finish the race, but that's not what matters the most. Winning the race is what matters the most. If winning didn't matter, there wouldn't be a prize for first place. There'd that's be participation right. trophies only. <laughs> that's right. Similarly, the Greek word for athlete that Paul uses here is agazina menos, which literally means contestant. If that word sounds vaguely familiar, it's because that's where we get the word agony from. Paul's saying to be an athlete, to win the trophy is not easy. It can be downright agonizing. And we see this with athletes who sacrifice so much to be the best in their sport. They train 4,500 hours to win a 45-minute contest. And of course, Paul isn't talking about boxing or any other sport. He's talking about our walk with Christ. Just like a premier athlete, we're to train hard, we're to sacrifice, agonize at times, and be singularly focused if we really want the trophy God has for us, an eternal trophy, one that doesn't die like a laurel wreath or doesn't rust like gold medal ones will. Right. So what does all this mean and how does this practically play out in our lives? Well, we can answer that by looking at what training hard, sacrificing, agonizing, and being singularly focused means for us in our Christian walk. So first, Chris, we'll look at training hard. And good news here, 
We don't have to get up at the crack of dawn, eat a dozen raw eggs and run through the streets of Philly to train like Rocky did. I'm glad. And are you ready for this shocker? Chris, I know you are going to be shocked by this, but training hard begins with knowing God's word. I'm so shocked that you said that. I know you weren't expecting that, but be honest. You can't compete in anything if you don't know how the game is played. So step one in our training is know your Bible, study scripture, find out who God is, exactly what he's done for you and what he expects of you. Absolutely. But training hard doesn't stop there. We aren't just to read our Bible and acknowledge that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We're to be a disciple of Jesus. And the word disciple means a student or a follower. Do our lives say that we're a disciple of Christ? They need to because... Through us, the world sees Jesus. So our discipleship shapes Jesus's reputation with the watching world. To get a clear picture of what a disciple of Christ should look like, we can turn to chapter nine of the book of Acts, Acts 9, 10, which says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And that's the end of the scripture. Now, this comes right after Jesus has met Paul on the road to Damascus and blinded him. The Lord's now coming to Ananias to tell him to go meet Paul. Pretty scary. Yeah. Now, Ananias only has a few lines written about him in scripture, but there is no doubt that he had a profound effect on Paul, showing him exactly what training hard looks like. Ananias shows us the three characteristics of a disciple being chosen, being bold, and being committed. The ESV, Chris, that you read said, now there was a disciple. The King James Version says, now there was a certain disciple. God not only chose us to save before the foundation of the world, he also chose us to be his disciples. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And John 15, 16 records Jesus's words. Jesus says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Yeah, being a disciple of Christ is no more a choice than salvation is. If you've been saved by God, he has called you to be a disciple of Christ. There's no volunteer sign-up sheet here. Ananias was a disciple of Jesus, just like we are. Ananias was also a bold disciple. Paul was on his way to Damascus to arrest and kill followers of Jesus. Ananias was one of those followers. So Ananias boldly declared that he was a loyal follower of Jesus, knowing it could cost him his life. He even tells God that he knows of Paul and knows what Paul's mission is. Yet God says go and he goes. Ananias may have had some hesitancy reminding God what Paul was coming to Damascus to do, but he never had a hesitancy about Jesus and who he was in Christ. If we read the account in Acts 9, Jesus tells Ananias that Paul will be his chosen instrument to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, but he never gives Ananias any reassurances about his own life. 
compromising or watering down the truth of Jesus to make things go better for himself never entered Ananias's mind. In fact, he boldly proclaims it to Paul when they meet. Yeah. And I love when Jesus calls him, he says, here I am, Lord. Yeah. It's, it's not, what do you want? What can I do for you? It's, he's ready to serve. Here I am, Lord. Yeah. And that points to that Ananias is a committed disciple. Again, never did he think to not go meet Paul when Jesus told him to, even if it cost him his life. Like you said, Chris, Jesus didn't give him any assurance that he wasn't going to die. He just said he's going to use Paul. He doesn't give any Christian any assurance that they're not going to die a horrible death or be put through trial. That's right. Ananias was all in on team Jesus. In fact, Paul says about him in Acts 22, 12, he says, Ananias was a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. And that's the end of scripture. That's a pretty extraordinary reputation. You're it not, absolutely is. Yeah, you're not considered devout and well-spoken of by everyone in your town because you spoke about God's truth once or twice, or you merely just went to synagogue every week. A reputation like that is from a lifetime, or at least many years, of consistently and publicly following and boldly declaring God and his word. Ananias shows us that we as disciples, we're chosen by God. Therefore, we need to be bold and we need to be committed to being a follower to Jesus. Real disciples of Christ train hard by boldly, devotedly, and humbly pursuing God and trusting him completely. And that's not always easy. No, it's not. Nobody ever said training was easy. If it was, we'd all be competing in races. And out of our training hard, our studying of God's word and being a committed and bold disciple of Christ will undoubtedly mean that there will be sacrifices that we're called to make. I'm going to quote Eric Sowers again from his book, In the Arena of Faith. He says, and here's his quote, the one who is not prepared to sacrifice will not be honored to gain the crown. The one who has regard to his ego will one day when Christ appears have a great disappointment. The one who holds fast to an earthly mind, to his own convenience, to his own enjoyment of sin, to pride, renders himself unequal for racing. Only serious training, practical holiness, and self-denial in true discipleship can strengthen spiritual muscle. And that's the end of his quote. Yeah, and I think he makes a really good point. Something yeah, we does. don't often think about. Now, we can't possibly list sacrifices you may have to make as you race for the crown in your spiritual journey. You might have to move. You might have to give up friends, give up comfort, maybe even give up family. And while we all will have different sacrifices to make, make no mistake that if you're a true disciple of Christ racing to win, you will at some point have to make a sacrifice. Maybe it won't be a huge one, but you will have to make a sacrifice at some point. Ephesians 5.2 tells us that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, if Jesus is willing to sacrifice for us, if God the Father was willing to let Jesus sacrifice, 
it would be arrogant and ignorant of us to think that we wouldn't have to ever sacrifice anything for the sake of following Christ. Yeah, some sacrifices won't be so hard. At least they shouldn't be. As Hebrews 13, 16 tells us, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And that's the end of that scripture. Now, some may be a lot tougher, like your unbelieving spouse walking out on you, giving up a really well-paying job because it's unethical, having friends or family think that you're crazy, maybe constantly berating you, or maybe even cutting ties with you completely. But just as an athlete is willing to sacrifice eating certain foods, missing out on time with family, or refusing to skip training even when their body begs them to, we need to be willing to sacrifice whatever it is that Jesus asks of us to stay in the race and to stay in the front of the pack. Jesus says in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Tough words. And they're very tough words, very tough words. And sometimes staying at the front of the pack doesn't just mean making sacrifices. Sometimes, like the meaning of being an athlete in a race, it's downright agonizing. Modern Christianity in the West has done believers a huge disservice. Pick up any modern book on Christianity and you'll see that it talks about our Christian walk being full of adventure or victory over our circumstances. It's about our peace and our tranquility. Well, Chris, that's not even close to the Christianity from the Bible. No, it's not. The Bible says, like Jesus's words that you just read, says, take up your cross daily. Jesus is quoted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke as saying, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. He says in Matthew 10, 38, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Well, that doesn't sound like it's all about peace and tranquility. No, it doesn't. And here's what Got Question says about what it means to carry our cross. And here's their quote. When a person carried a cross in Jesus's day, no one thought of it as a persistent annoyance or symbolic burden. To a person in the first century, the cross meant one thing and one thing only, death by crucifixion. To carry a cross was to face the most painful and humiliating means of death human beings could develop. Therefore, Jesus's command to take up your cross and follow me is a call to self-abasement and self-sacrifice. One must be willing to die in order to follow Jesus. Dying to self is an absolute surrender to God. And that's the end of their quote. And we don't like to hear this because we're so addicted to comfort. And we're, we're going to talk about this in the next episode a lot. But duty, even in agony, is what is presented throughout the Bible. Yeah, it absolutely is. There's nobody worrying about their comfort. That's for sure. In scripture and throughout history, we see God often gives afflictions to those who end up doing the most for him. And we might wonder, why is that? Well, it's because they show us what it means to run for the prize. Not that we need afflictions to run well and win, but these people, including Paul, show us that winning the race is more important than anything we got going on 
physically, mentally, or emotionally. Now it's several weeks away, but our next series is going to be on some of the giants in the faith. And we're going to look at some men and women who ran the race well and won despite some horrific circumstances that they had. Right. And I'll just give a couple of very quick examples. John Calvin was in poor health throughout most of his life, suffering from severe migraines and stomach issues. He was deeply in love with his wife, but they lost three children in infancy. And after only nine years of marriage, his wife died. Despite all of that, no one can argue that Calvin was the biggest influence in the Reformation and Reformed theology. Here's another. For years, R.C. Sproul had to wheel his oxygen tank around with him. His health deteriorating more and more and having more and more difficulty breathing, he had to give some of his final sermons sitting down. Yet he's considered to be the greatest and most influential proponent of the recovery of Reformed theology in the last century. He preached on November 27, 2017, was hospitalized on December 2nd, and died on December 14th. Now, that is winning the race despite your agony. It certainly is. And of course, there's Paul. We know Paul had some kind of affliction that he refers to, but Paul also received many beatings. He was stoned, he was imprisoned, and it wasn't like prisons today. It was a pretty awful place. He was shipwrecked, he was starved, and who knows what else happened to him. There's no doubt that Paul's health was majorly affected throughout his ministry and deteriorated as he got older. So, Chris, although we've been alluding to it, we should define exactly what it means to win the race. I mean, I want to know, what does it mean to win the race? Well, thankfully for me, it has nothing to do with speed or even actually running. We run the race well with the goal of winning by training hard, sacrificing, and agonizing, but we cross the finish line first by being singularly focused. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 nails what being singularly focused means. And here's what this says. The verses say, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That pretty much sums it up. Yep. When Jesus came to earth, he was singularly focused on doing the will of God by completing the plan of redemption that the Trinity had laid out before the foundation of the world, ultimately bringing glory to God. When we are singularly focused on winning the race in our Christian walk, we are looking to do God's will, complete the good works he has for us to do, and bring him glory in all that we do. We see all three of these things being commanded of us throughout scripture. In Matthew 7, 23, Jesus says, if we're not focused on doing God's will, we don't belong to God. And here's what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And Ephesians 5, 10 shows us that we're to be focused on the good works God had set out for us to do. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And one verse of many that shows we're to glorify God in everything we do is actually in the next chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to peek ahead here. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now, you might be feeling a little overwhelmed right now because you're thinking, not only do I have to train hard, sacrifice, agonize while racing, I have to win. I have to stay singularly focused on God's will, God's purpose for my life, and being sure I glorify God in all that I do. There's no way I can do that. I don't even want to enter the race. And that's exactly the right way that we should respond because it's all completely true. There is no way that we could ever do this on our own and in our own strength. Everyone God used in scripture, everyone God has used throughout history, every one of us could do absolutely nothing without God. As Isaiah 41, 9 through 10 says, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. And Philippians 4, 12 and 13 says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yeah, God tells us to win the race, to train hard, to sacrifice, to agonize, to be singularly focused on him. But he never asks us to do it alone or in our own strength. He's the one who ultimately propels us to victory, despite what we may encounter during the race. Joseph is such a great example of so many things. And he's a great example of this. God didn't protect Joseph from his circumstances, but he did protect him in his circumstances. No matter what God brings us into, He's going to bring us through it. If we are faithful, if we train hard, sacrifice, persevere through agony and remain focused on him, we are assured of winning the race because God is the one who pulls us over the finish line. Amen to that. And when you stumble during the race and you get thrown off balance and we say when, not if, because we all do, it's a guarantee that it's going to happen. Don't bail on the race. Your feet will get tired, your back will hurt, your head will scream for you to slow down or maybe even to stop. There will even be times that you will feel like a failure. And like I said, we've all been there. Yep. You'll feel like everyone else is blowing past you and you might even feel like you've blown it. Yep. But beloved, this is your race. This is the race that God has set out for you to run. You aren't running against John Calvin or R.C. Sproul. Thank, thankfully, we're not. You're running to win your race. So those times that you feel like a failure and you feel like quitting, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and ask God for the strength to continue. That's right. That's the real meaning of Philippians 4, 12, and 13, that God will help you persevere in all circumstances. Yep. And because the trophy set before us, the prize that doesn't die like a laurel wreath or rust like a gold medal, 
is so worth whatever it takes to win. And what is that prize? That prize is that one day all of us will stand before God and give an accounting of what we did while we're on this earth, either when we die or when Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. And as long as we're truly trusting in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, it's not going to affect our salvation. But if you run the race well and win, the prize you get is to hear God say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. There is not a prize in the universe that could ever compare to that. Amen to that. And that's a good place to end today. Don't forget, if you haven't already, check out our new podcast, 5 a.m. Theology. We've had a lot of fun with it and we've learned a lot doing it. Have a blessed day, everybody.